Good morning, it's so great to see you here today. My name is Michael and I serve with our creative team. And I'm Mike and I serve in adult communities. Mike, what's one thing you wish somebody new to Wheaton Bible Church knew about the church? Well, spending more time at Wheaton Bible can lead to long-term fellowship with a lot of believers. For instance, in our adult community, we have folks that have been together 10, 20, 30 years, and it's been great. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. On a less serious note, down by those adult communities, uh, in the basement, I don't know if it's back with COVID, but there's a place you can get some free coffee. So maybe go check out some of those adult communities, meet some friends down there. Well, if you are looking to get connected here at Wheaton Bible Church, I wanna invite you to step one of the growth track. The monthly growth track is a place where you can grow in your relationship with God and connect with the church. Next week at step one, you can ask any questions you have, learn more about the church, and get connected with either a team or a group that would be right for you. It takes place here at our West Chicago campus at 1030, and you can register and get more details at wheatonbible.org slash next steps. So one other thing, next week, we're having an all church prayer night. It's happening at our West Chicago campus outside on the West Lawn at six o'clock. So you can get more details at wheatonbible.org slash next steps. And last, I wanted to share about our Sunday teams. As more and more people are returning to campus, several teams need some more help. Specifically, our Kids Life team, our production team, and our front door teams would love to talk with you about how you can share your talents with others. To get more details on the opportunities, you can go to wheatonbible.org slash next steps and discover which volunteer team is right for you. Well, that's all for today. Thanks so much for spending part of your weekend with us, and we hope you have an amazing week. Good morning. Psalm 9-2 says, I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing the praises of your name, O Most High. Psalm 13-5, I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. We're about to sing for our first hymn, Rejoice, the Lord is King. And it starts like this, Rejoice, the Lord is King. Your Lord and King adore. Rejoice, give thanks, and sing and triumph evermore. I wanted to open it up to the congregation today for those of you who are here anyway. Uh, what aspect of God do you rejoice in this morning? Just lift up your voice, a characteristic of God. Mercy, faithfulness, forgiveness, grace. His constant character, he's always the same. Anyone else? Say again. Love. And his providence. Amen. Think of all that would be different if Jesus, our Savior, didn't reign over heaven and earth. We are safe in his arms. So let's stand and rejoice together in those parts of the Lord.
Amen. Please be seated. One of the special things we're doing in this series is that we're having people share on Sunday mornings the impact that God's love has had on their lives. And today we're going to hear from Scott Ashley. So Scott, what impact has God's love had on your life? Well, at the risk of sounding cliche, uh, my answer is that I was once blind, but now I see. And I lead with that because for the first 10 years of my adult life, I was a professing atheist sometimes pretty loudly professing. So for God to forgive me and accept me into his family is surely the ultimate in love. And as much as we are all impacted by God's love every day, for me there are certain pivotal events in my life that I look to as reminders of the path that I'm on. One example of that is that some years back, I was going through a tough time in my marriage, and I was working on weekends and unable to attend church. So I was feeling pressure from a couple of different angles. A friend of mine from the music ministry that I had been a part of called me at the store where I was working one day after he got home from church to encourage me. And it was great to hear his voice and feel connected to the body of Christ despite my distance from church going. Right after that call, I had an amazing three-part uh, realization. The first being um, that I had been angry about my relationship and work circumstances and wasn't really in tune with that. The second was that the anger had not really manifested itself, and I was certainly thankful for that. And then the third and most important part was that I understood that God had been carrying me and supporting me through the anger and emotions and disconnection from the church in such a way that I had been able to function well despite all the turmoil. So it was incredibly comforting and affirming. Thanks so much. How has God's love impacted each of our lives? We're going to take some time now to just ponder that quietly as the piano plays. And then we'll pray the Lord's Prayer together. So think about how has God's love impacted my life, maybe broadly or in a couple specific moments. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. Let's stand.
going through this series and how God is our treasure and how we can share that love with others, I've been reminded how painful it can be to sacrifice sometimes to love other people. And yet that great fruit can come out of that sacrifice. And maybe you know what I'm saying. I wrote the song we're about to sing years ago to remind myself that if I trust in God and let him shepherd be me, I can be amazed at what he can do. Because in John, Jesus said that people with faith in him will do great things. And that is true of Wheaton Bible Church. This applies to how we love each other and how we sacrifice for others. So we hope you're encouraged as we learn this new song.
Morning, familia. I don't know about you, but one of the things that ministered to me the most when we gather as a church is when I get to hear the saints singing. I mean by saints, you. <laughs> it, is, it is such a blessing. I get, I've, it brings such a joy to my heart when I hear people singing. Now picture this. If that is true for a broken person like me, can you imagine what our worship does to the heart of God? So how about if we give God glory for how we get to worship him this morning? So before uh, we pray, uh, I just wanted to share with you something really quick. Um, I don't know if you have noticed this already as you come into the church, but um, we have been super intentional about including our younger generation in part of our worship experience. So um, once again, I don't know if you noticed this, but two weeks ago we had... Um, a group, like at least half of our team, one-third actually of the entire team that was serving this morning in tech and cameras and sound and different places of the church was, uh, was being led by high schoolers. That's an amazing thing. How about we give glory to God for that? And that's part because we are a church that believe that we're supposed to be, by God's design, a multi-generational church. Also, by God's design, as a church, we're supposed to be a church that grieves with those that grieve. And this is the reason why we have a ministry called Grieve Share. If, you never, if you're not familiar with that ministry, you should get familiar with that ministry. We just heard this story about this woman, Bethany, uh, Bethany that she has been doing all kinds of things to fix her heart, if you will. But it was, all, it was through this ministry that the Lord finally got a grip of her heart and changed her life. Now, the reason why I'm sharing that is because part of the reason why we can do this as a church is because you get to worship God through your generosity. So please continue to do that. If you're not one of our, uh, if you haven't, if that's not part of your spiritual discipline, one of your spiritual disciplines, please do. Please support the church financially. You could always support the church financially by going to our website, wittenbible.org give, or simply at the end of the services, by the entrance, you will find a box you could place your offering and your tithing there. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that um, we get to worship you today. Lord, we are grateful because when we worship, we are responding to you showing yourself first. The reason why we worship, Lord, is because you have manifested yourself first. It is the most natural thing, Lord, for us to respond when we find something beautiful. And it is because you are beautiful and powerful and amazing and lovely, Lord, that we get to worship you today. Lord, I pray that you make of us a church that worships more and more, that we worship through everything that we do, Lord, that we worship at home, that we worship at church, that we worship when we are with our neighbors, that we worship in the way we live our lives, that we worship through our offerings and givings, Lord, that we, all, that we worship as we serve the church, that we worship, Lord, in everything we do. And now, Lord, I pray that by the power and the presence of your Spirit, you reveal yourself to us this morning so we get to see you and love you and respond in adoration. Lord, but I understand that the only way in order for us to learn how to appreciate you is when we first see the reality of our hearts. So I pray, Lord, that you show us this morning our hearts. 
so we then can see Jesus and how beautiful he is. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says? All right, so my name is Hannibal Rodriguez. For those of you that don't know me, I'm one of the uh, teaching pastors here at church. And if you are here in person, which, by the way, you all look so, so beautiful. Well, at least most of you look so, so beautiful. Uh, But if you're worshiping with us online, I'm so grateful that we get to do this together. For the last few weeks, actually from the last week of April, uh, since the uh, last week of April, we have been doing a series called Love and Filter, in which we're going through this section of the scripture that is very famous and popular. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is a passage that talks about the love that ought to be displayed and put into practice into the, in the Christian community. That is the whole idea of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. When Paul, the, author of, the human author of that letter under the influence of the Spirit, writes this letter to the Corinthians, he's writing it because he understands that when, Christians, because, that when Christians, even if they possess all the spiritual gifts, and even if they have all the talents in the world, or even if they have faith that moves a mountain, or even if they help everyone in need, or we are people of strong convictions, Paul says in that letter that if we don't have love, listen to this, we are nothing, we gain nothing. That's a crazy statement. You can have it all, conquer all, possess all, do all, but if you do not have love, Paul says, we are nothing and we gain nothing. That is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. But what Paul is going to argue is that the only way we learn how to do community is actually when we learn how to love one another. So that's why I'm going, to ask, uh, I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read just a section, same section that we have been reading for a while. Uh, and we are standing as a sign of reverence to God and His Word. And then I'm going to tell you what we're going to be focusing on today. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through the first part of verse 8. If you're still here, could you please say, I'm here. Starting in verse 4. The Bible says, Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Can we read that last sentence together? Love never fails. Once again, Holy Spirit, we ask that you speak to us this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And we all say, you may take a seat. Today, we are going to focus on verse 5. The first part of verse 5, look at what it says, that love does not dishonor others, and love is not self-seeking. And we're, gonna, and we're putting these two words together because I understand, and we understand that these concepts actually come together. See, the person that is a self-seeker, by nature, is a person that will dishonor others. And a person that dishonors others is because that person, by nature, is a self-seeker. Question. Family time. How many of us struggle with the sin of self-seeking? 
All right, half of the congregation, which is really good, better than last time. Hopefully by the end of the sermon, we are all convinced that the reason why Paul writes this letter to us, not just to that church, is because we always struggle with this. So these are my three points for today. We're going to talk about the illusion of self-seeking, the problem with self-seeking, the salvation for the self-seeker. The illusion, the problem, and the salvation. Let's go with the first point, the illusion of self-seeking. We have to start with a definition. What does it mean when Paul says that we are self-seekers? As much as I like the NIV Bible, which is the one that we use here at church, I actually think that it's one of the best Bibles to use in the church. I don't think that the NIV, the NIV actually help us to understand what the term self-seeker means or fully understand what the word self-seeker means in the original language. See, in the original language, the word can be translated as to desire. But it's not just to desire something in a regular, natural way, but the root of that word in the original is to desire something so and so much, much that you're willing to debate or to argue or to be controversial. So when Paul uses the phrase self-seeker, he's describing a group of people that want to seek something so and so bad that they're willing to debate or to argue or to be controversial. In other, wo- in other words, Paul is describing a person that will do anything to satisfy him or herself at the expense of someone else. See, what Paul says is that the problem is not just to desire something. But what Paul is arguing is that when we desire something so and so bad, we will, by nature, sacrifice other people to get what we want. This is part of the reason why some other translations actually translate the word self-seeker like this. Love does not insist in its own way. It is not self-serving, does not seek its own interest, never seeks its own advantage, does not demand its own way. It is not selfish. Those are better translations, you see? It's not just to desire something. And what Paul is going to argue here is that it's simply impossible for someone to really love somebody else and be a self-seeker. Why? Because Christian love is, a self, is self-sacrifice, not others' sacrifice. Amen? Christian love is being willing to die to oneself instead of insisting on its own way. Amen? Christian love seeks to serve others instead of being self-serving. Amen? That was depressing. <laughs> Christian love is willing to disadvantage oneself instead of seeking its own advantage. Amen? Christian love is not selfish, it is selfless, amen? Christian love puts others first, amen? Christian love seeks happiness by making other people happy, amen? Christian love is doing what is the best for the other person. Love, Christian love, is always others-oriented. What Paul is saying once again here is that it's simply impossible. Can you say impossible? Impossible. To be loving to somebody else if you're not willing to kill your self-seeking heart. 
Let's pray. That would be crazy if I send you home like this. See, Paul is extremely confrontational here. And Paul is going after our heart. If you were here last week, you probably remember that I talked for very few minutes, actually seconds, about the the damage of the movement of the secular concept of self-esteem. Today, I got to talk about that again because that's what Paul is after here. See, do you remember when here in our society, we used to have those places called bookstores? (laughs) Well, if you remember those places, and this is true for the last 40 years, by the way, the most popular and the biggest sections in every bookstore in the United States was the self-help section. I don't know if you ever noticed that. It was super interesting because in almost every store I went to, when they were, op- they were open, the, the self-help section had shelves and shelves of books. And usually next to it, you had the spiritual section, and you will find the Christian section with like one thing of books. Why did that happen? Well, because for 40 years we have been ta- hearing people say that what matters most is that you learn how to love yourself, self-esteem. This is the reason why for the last 20 to 30 years in the United States of America, the most popular speakers are not the preachers, but the motivational speakers. This is the reason why, church, pay attention to this. Some of the most progressive Christians in the United States today are becoming life coaches. Did you know that? Why? Because we have believed the idea of the self-esteem. See, all these people know that the secret to, quote-unquote, success in an egocentric society is to continue to tell people that the more they think about themselves, the more they put themselves first, the the more they see themselves as the center of the universe, the more we expect others to adjust to ourselves, the more, quote-unquote, happy we are going to be. These are some of the phrases that experts use to boost your self-esteem. Love yourself. Be your best self now. You are capable. That was brave. You got this. I believe in you. You can do hard things. Give it your best. You are enough. Repeat after me. I can do it. Millionaires saying those same sentences over and over again. Is there anything wrong with those phrases? Well, that depends. It depends on the heart of the person that is hearing these things. See, if I am called to love myself at the expense of others, there's something wrong with me. Don't you think? If being my best self now means that I should sacrifice others to be my best self now, then there's something wrong with that. If believing that I got this means that I don't need God and I don't need others, then there's something wrong with that. If I believe that I could do hard things because I have this intrinsic power to do it, then there's a problem with that. If you tell me that I am enough and that means that I'm self-sufficient, then there's a problem with that. 
If you tell me to repeat to myself, I can't do it. But I cannot recognize that I'm, a, that I'm weak and a sinner. Then there's a problem with that. How about we learn from the wisdom of Proverbs 26, 28? Look at what the proverb says. A lying tongue hates those it hurts, and a flattering mouth works ruin. The word flattering in the text can be translated as smooth talking or falsehood talking. To say something to someone that sounds smooth and inspiring, but that is false, it creates a, self sense, a false sense of identity, and it ruins the person. This is part of the reason why our society is the way it is. Because for 40 years, we have been hearing people saying that the best thing they could do for you is to be a self-seeker, self-esteem. Insist on your own way, serve yourself, seek for your own interest, seek for your own advantage, demand people to do it your way. Selfish people. This is part of the reason why I say that self-seeking is an illusion. It promises happiness and people are still miserable. It promises that we're going to be okay and then there's higher levels of depression than ever, ever before. It tells you that you're going to conquer the world and we're still struggling. Glenn Harrison, he's a Christian counselor and psychiatrist, he wrote a book called uh, The Ego Trip. And he talks about the effect of the self-esteem movement. This is what he says, and I put it on the screen. First, surveys show that over the past three decades, people have been more ready to endorse statements of self-importance, entitlement, and other traits of narcissism. Secondly, it is likely that the self-esteem movement has contributed significantly to the rise of narcissism and narcissistic personality disorders. Thirdly and finally, the self-esteem movement may be associated with, the rise, with a rise in unhappiness and discontentment among young adults. See, this is what our society has done. Trying to boost somebody else's self-esteem, we have created a whole generation of people of self-importance, entitlement, narcissism, and happiness and discontentment. That is the secular approach, humanistic approach to happiness. Paul Tripps calls this the dissatisfying claustrophobia of individualism. I love that phrase. I'll say it again, because it was so hard to pronounce. Dissatisfying claustrophobia of individualism. He says, individualism is not freedom, it is bondage. Living for yourself is not liberty, it is self-imposed prison. Doing what you want to do when you want to do it and how you want to do it has never been the good life. It never leads to anything good. Tim Keller says that a self-seeker is empty, painful, Busy and fragile. 
empty because it doesn't matter how much you try, you are not competent enough to satisfy the most profound desires of your heart. Only God can do that. It is painful because when something hurts in your body, it's because there's something wrong with that. If your ego hurts, it's because there's something wrong with that. It is busy. It's because the ego is always trying to get attention from somebody. And it is fragile because he does not know how to deal with the disappointments in life. Have you guys ever seen the show American Idol? How many of you guys seen the show American Idol? Have you seen how people cannot take criticism? Have you seen the reaction of how many people cannot bear with the idea that they're not as awesome as they think they are? You know how detrimental it is for a young person to hear at home, to hear at school, to hear by their friends that they know how to sing. And when they get to American Idol, Simon says, you're awful. (laughs) And they don't know how to deal with that. Why? Because that is the product of self-esteem and a self-seeking society. Now, you got to keep in mind that Paul has a community in mind. Paul knows that self-seeking is an illusion. But the effects of that are displayed in a community. This is my point, point number two, the problem with self-seeking. And this is where the word dishonoring comes from. I want to provide for you uh, one of the definitions I found. Dishonoring means to behave disgracefully. Now, pay attention how this scholar puts it. The thoughtless pursuit of the immediate wishes of the self regardless of the conventions and courtesies of interpersonal life. Notice that this scholar is saying the same thing that Paul says. The self-seeker by nature will always do something dishonoring, not loving, because the only thing that matters to the self-seeker is the self. Self-seeking, just as pride, if you guys were here last week, is antisocial by nature. It is impossible to love somebody when you allow self-seeking to control your heart. Now, I'm about to get super personal now, and some people might get offended, but I already got voted, so it doesn't really matter. (laughs) Just kidding. No, I'm not. That is the problem with modern-day Christianity and the church. We have created a consumeristic mentality of the church. The church ought to accommodate itself for my personal likes, desires, and wishes. And if I don't like it, I fly. Don't you find that terrible? That's not what Christianity is. And part of the reason why we struggle with that 
is because we see ourselves as the end of love and not as the means of love. Part of the struggle is that we see ourselves as the end of love and not as the means of love. Let me, let me give you another quote, because today is the day of quotes. Our self can be either a means or an end. If we make ourselves the end, the ultimate goal, the final aim of our striving, we are in conflict with agapic love. Agapic, agape is the name that is used there for love in the original. Love does not seek itself as the living end. Instead, love is the power that drives us to seek ourselves as a means to being agents of love. But whenever the self is the ultimate, we tend to see others as instruments for our growth. Did you catch that last sentence? Instead of loving people, we use others as tools to accomplish what we want. Instead of loving people, we use people. Have you ever experienced that when someone approaches you? Not because they love you, not because they want to care for you, not because they're really interest, interested in you, but because they want your relationship to do something. They want your friendship to accomplish something. They get close to you, not because you're important, but because they need you. Can you see why self-seeking is a disruption to community? It's impossible to love someone that way. I don't know if you ever heard of Rosaria Butterfield, which is an amazing, she's got an amazing testimony, amazing conversion story. But this is a woman that has struggled with her sexual identity her entire life. And she truly, an amazing, uh, super smart person that she believed that education had the power to change the world. One day she meets this pastor and his wife and for a whole year, they spend almost every evening together just having dinner. And they talked, and they became friends. And not once during that season, the pastor um, saw her, according to her testimony, as a problem to be fixed or with a hidden agenda and not as a project either. But he wanted to be in her life because of who she was as a human being. And the Lord used him and his wife as a means of love, and her heart was radically changed. You see, that's what community looks like. What Paul is saying is the same thing that I just read in that quote. Our tendency is to see ourselves as the end of love and not as the means of love. That's part of the reason why Paul writes first letter, chapter 13, or the chapter 13 in First Corinthians letter. Because he knew that even though these people had everything, they did not know how to love. They were self-seekers by nature. They were nation, uh, nature. They were using other people to gain something for them. Let me just show you really quick. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, they have this argument. They're saying, well, I follow Paul, Apollos. And the other one says, well, I follow Paul. 
And it's not because they care for their spiritual leaders. The reason why they're doing this is because they want to use their name to boost themselves up. You know how sad it is to be the pastor of a church and people use you just for them to feel better about themselves? It's almost like me going to Rob and saying to you, actually going to you and saying about Rob, did you know that I know Rob? Not because I care about Rob, but because I'm going to use him for to accomplish whatever I want to accomplish. That's using people. Actually, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, that not only they didn't know how to love people well in that sense, but also they, even though they had the right theology, they were using their theology wrong and were not willing to sacrifice anything for the sake of anybody. Look what it says. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your right does not become an stumbling block for, to the weak. This is a group of people that had the right theology. They knew everything that they were supposed to know. They had the right doctrine, but they were not willing to die for anybody at any point. They were not willing to sacrifice themselves. That's why in verse 12 he says, When you sin against them, our brothers and sisters, in this way and wound their weak conscience, your sin against Christ. That's ironic, don't you think? You got the right theology, but you don't know how to use it. You know everything that you're supposed to know, and yet you're self-seeker. Self-seeking by nature is antisocial. That's the problem. So let me repeat what Paul says about love. If love is not self-seeking, then the Christian love is self-sacrifice, not other sacrifice. Christian love is being willing to die to oneself instead of insisting on my own way. Christian love seeks to serve others instead of self-serving. Christian love is willing to disadvantage myself instead of disadvantaging another person. Christian love is not selfish. It is selfless. Christian love puts others first. Christian love seeks happiness by making other people happy. Christian love puts other people first at all times. Question. Can someone live like that? Is this an ideal, or is it possible for someone to live like this? Is it possible for us to kill our self-seeking hearts? And the answer is yes. This doesn't mean that we're not going to struggle with this. It doesn't mean that we're going to be completely free of this. But what it does mean is that it is possible to live and love like that. How do we do it? Point number three. This is the salvation for the self-seeker. Notice here. If love does not dishonor others, and love is not self-seeking, then to love, we must honor by self-denial. I only got one amen from the entire congregation. <laughs> love honors by self-denial. How about if we read it together? Love honors by self-denial. We learn how to love others, and we honor others by practicing self-denial. The problem with that is that that, does, that doesn't come natural to us. 
What comes natural to us is exactly the opposite. That's why the solution, if you really want to learn how to die to these things, the solution is to learn how to see yourself differently. The solution is for you to have a different relationship with yourself. This is the solution, in my opinion, and I'm going to give you three things. Learn to see yourself as a mean and not as the end. So we can learn this from Paul's example in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Look at what he says. Though I am free and be... Oh, wait. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Did you know that that's one of my favorite verses in the Bible? Because it's so hard to do. It reminds me that I'm not there yet. You know what it means to see yourself as a mean? And not as an end? It means that I have to be willing to become a slave to everyone. Not to some, not to the ones you like, not to your family only, not to your church buddies, friends, not to the ones you play golf with, not just with the people that have uh, dinners and lunches, but to everyone. So I could win as many as possible. There's a group that I really enjoy. It's, a worship, uh, worship, it's kind of a worship band. The name is Rand Collective. And they have this song that is called, Real Love is Not Afraid to Bleed. And this is basically what Paul is saying here. Real love is not afraid to bleed. Isn't that the reason why we celebrate Memorial Day? Because we remember people that are saying real love is not afraid to bleed. So this week, someone from the staff sent me the testimony or the story of Milton L. Olive III which was the first African-American recipient of the Medal of Honor, a young man that gave his life away at age 18 because when he was in the middle of the war, him and another four soldiers were in the jungle together, and a grenade was thrown in their midst, and this young 18-year-old African-American man grabbed the grenade and hugged it and laid on top of it so nobody else will die but him. Because real love is not afraid to bleed. We can only do that when we learn how to see ourselves as a mean and not as an end. Number two. The only way we learn how to do that is when we see ourselves as the end of God's means. Look at what Paul says once again in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. See, only when we learn to see ourselves as true sinners, not good people that need improvement, and not good people that need a little bit of fixing, but as sinners, 
Only when we learn to see ourselves as sinners is when we get to appreciate why is it that God did everything that he did for us. If you, only, if you learn to see yourself as a sinner, it's the only possible way that you really appreciate Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It is the only way Jesus becomes beautiful in your heart. This is why Paul in Romans chapter 7 says, what a wretched man I am. Can you say that about yourself? What a wretched man I am who will, rest, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Who's going to save me from myself? And Paul says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, the only way that you're willing to bleed for somebody else, to sacrifice for somebody else, is when you first see and understand what Jesus was willing, how much Jesus was willing to bleed for you. See, if we get inspired by someone like Milton Olive III, can you imagine what our heart, how our heart would change if we get to see our, our, our bleeding Savior at the cross? See, we can only change when love is not a concept, but a person. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Self-sacrifice, not others' sacrifice. Jesus Christ being willing to die to himself instead of insisting on his own way. Jesus Christ being willing to serve others instead of self-serving. Jesus Christ being willing to disadvantage himself instead of self-seeking. Jesus Christ living and dying a selfless dead instead of a selfish dead. Jesus Christ putting us first. Jesus Christ seeking our happiness by dying on a cross. Jesus Christ putting you first. This is the crazy good thing about the gospel. Is that Jesus at the cross looks at you and says, I am not afraid to bleed. Because real love is not afraid to bleed. Did you know that everything God did in Jesus Christ? was for his glory and your good? And number three, you need to learn how to see Christ as the end of all means. First Corinthians chapter 9, verse 23, Paul says, I do all these things for the sake of the gospel that I may share in his blessings. And most scholars agree in saying that what Paul is saying here is that he finds Jesus so beautiful that he just wants to contribute to what the Lord is doing. He wants other people to know the love that he knew, to experience what he experienced. See, it is only when Jesus is the end of all of our means that we learn how to love. Amen? Let's pray. Our wonderful Savior, we come before you because we do see, Lord, how much we struggle with these things. We do see how Paul was right in scolding the Corinthian church, and we see how Paul is right in scolding us today, even if we have been a Christian. 
if we have been Christians for a while. And I think, Lord, that part of the struggle is because we continue to see love as a concept and not a person. I pray, Lord, that you elevate the image of Christ in our hearts. You elevate Jesus Christ and him crucified. I pray, Lord, that you make um, <clears throat> the reality of our hearts or convince us that we are sinners to the point that the cross looks beautiful and magnificent. Only there, Lord, we're going to learn how to die to our self-seeking hearts. Only there, Lord, we will learn how to honor others. Only there, Lord, we can, we're going to be able to say, to say real love is not afraid to bleed. Make of us, Lord, Witten Bible Church, Iglesia del Pueblo, and Tri Village, a church that can say that to one another. I'm willing to bleed for you because we have a Savior that already bled for us. And we pray for all this in the name of Jesus. And we all say...
Before we finish our service, I want to remind you that it is a pleasure for us and a blessing for us every time we get to pray for you. So if you have prayer requests, please let us know. We want to pray for you. Now let's receive the blessing that Jesus Christ guarantees for us at the cross. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face to you and give you peace. And the church says, thanks for coming. We love you. Church, you are sent.